King David is one of the most famous characters of the Bible. Certainly in the Old Testament, we know that he was God's chosen king. He took the place of Saul, a man after God's own heart. He wrote many psalms, and if we really know our Bibles, we'll know that uh, to him was given the promise that a future descendant would rule and reign on his throne forever. Scripture certainly presents a very positive view of David. He's described as a righteous king who followed the Lord and walked in his commandments. But if you're familiar with the life of David or his Psalms, you know that like every other human being, this side of heaven, excepting Jesus, David was a sinner. Scripture, in fact, records a number of his great moral failings. And perhaps the biggest moral failing is the sin that David committed against Uriah and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. You might have heard of the story of David and Bathsheba, how he stayed back in Jerusalem, saw Bathsheba bathing, and took her. He lay with her, and she became pregnant. And her husband was out fighting Uriah and David's army, and David tries to cover this up. He invites Uriah to come back and encourages him to spend the night with his wife so that there'd be some plausible deniability. But he doesn't. And so that plan fails. David sends him back to the front lines with a letter telling Joab to put him in the place of hardest fighting and then draw all the other men back (laughs) so that he would be struck down. And he is struck down. And after hearing this, David tells uh, Joab, don't worry about it. The sword devours now one, now another. Just keep doing what you're doing. And then he brings Bathsheba to his house and takes her as his wife, and she bears him a son. That is 2 Samuel chapter 11. But chapter 11 ends with this statement. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And chapter 12, verse 1 begins, And the Lord sent Nathan... To David. In the previous chapter, David did a whole lot of sending. In fact, seven times it's described that David sent someone or something. Chapter 11, verse 1. It was spring, the time of year when kings go out to battle, but David didn't go. He sent Joab and his armies to fight. Verse 3. David sends to inquire about the wife of Uriah. Verse 4, he sends messengers to Bathsheba to take her to him. In verse 6, he sends word to Joab to send back Uriah so he can try to cover this up. But when that didn't work, in verse 14, he sends a letter by the hand of Uriah to Joab, telling Joab essentially to kill him. And then in verse 18, Joab sends to David to tell him it was successful. And finally, in verse 27, David sent 
and brought Bathsheba to his house. Seven times in chapter 11, David is said to send others to do his bidding. David is at once active in committing sin and also passive in making use of other people to carry out his dirty work for him. And it seemed like the perfect plan. Everything seemed to work out for David. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. It's like, oh, right, the Lord. I forgot about him. Nowhere in the preceding 26 verses of chapter 11 is there any reference to God or the Lord at all. It's as though he fell out of the picture. David is doing what he pleases. The Lord is displeased. And so it is that David's sinful and frantic sending of messengers and thugs and mercenaries is met with the Lord sending Nathan, the prophet, to David. Now it's the Lord's turn to do some sending. And we read in chapter 12, verse 1, of what Nathan the prophet said to David. He says a story. He tells a story to David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. Rich man had many flocks and herds. Poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. It grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one from his own flock or herd. So instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler who came to him. It's often the case that a story can disarm us, right? Nathan doesn't just come in guns blazing. He tells a story similar to David's situation, but different enough that he might not realize this is actually about him. And when he hears it as a story, he, he sees what is right, what is wrong. He sees what proper uh, righteousness would require. And he even actually has a righteous anger, righteous anger. In verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, this imaginary man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing because he had no pity. And of course, Nathan says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and servants and wives. And I would have added more to you. But then why did you despise the Lord to do what is evil? By striking down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, taking his wife. Notice, David didn't, you know, go up to Uriah and stab him in the stomach. Maybe David couldn't quite do that. But he felt comfortable enough sending word to Joab. Not telling Joab to, you know, cut him down either. But telling Joab to, go, you know, put him in the hardest part. And then, you know, just withdraw a little, right? David's trying to accomplish murder but in ways that make it seem indirect and like he's not the one actually carrying it out. 
But the Lord confronts him and says, you struck down Uriah with a sword. You took Bathsheba. And now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. And as you took another's wife, so someone else from your own house will take your wives for themselves. You did it secretly, but this is going to happen in front of everyone. Before we progress further, notice the way that David's sin is described. You heard it in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And verse 14, Nathan will say, By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. When we read chapter 11, we might be surprised to see this focus on God as the offended party. David committed adultery, attempted to cover it up in a deceitful manner, and then committed murder. It would seem that the primary uh, person sinned against would be Uriah and Bathsheba. And make no mistake, of course, David did sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. But verses 9 and 14 remind us that the Lord is the primary offended party in every sin you and I commit. Every sin, no matter how big or small, is first and foremost definitionally an act of cosmic treason against the infinite, eternal, almighty creator of all the author of all life, being, goodness, who is goodness and truth himself. Secondarily and derivatively, our sins are also against others who are, after all, created in God's image as his image bearers. This is why David reflects back on this whole affair in Psalm 51. He writes in verse 4, against you, And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, right? Think about that. Against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but the Lord is the one ultimately who he had sinned against. Brothers and sisters, there is a radically Godward directionality to your life. You never relate merely to other human beings. Rather, you relate to God through how you relate to other human beings. If you lend to the poor, Proverbs says, you lend to the Lord. If you give a cup of cold water to a Christian brother or sister in need, you gave it to Christ, Jesus says. If you sin against your brother, like here, you sin against the Lord. If you curse a man who is made in the image of God, you curse the God in in whose image he was made. So David's sin has been exposed by Nathan the prophet, and the Lord has promised to raise up evil against David out of his own household. Now, what is David's response to all of this? Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. That's the response. 
It's not lengthy. But with these few words, David acknowledges his sin. He does not deny it. He does not minimize it, but confesses it before the Lord and before Nathan the prophet. As David writes in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, confess your sins. Own up. Confess to the Lord. Tell the Lord in prayer the wrongs that you have done against him. Sorrow over them. Be brokenhearted about them. And then repent. Turn from them, knowing that a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. Friends, listen to me. You will never know God's grace if you do not openly acknowledge and confess your sins to God. If you don't confess your sins to the Lord in prayer, in humble repentance and contrition of heart, then one of two things will happen. Either you will convince yourself that the wrong that you did maybe isn't so wrong after all. You have your excuses. I was tired. It was late. I was angry. I was sad. I was lonely. I've been through a lot lately. Maybe I deserved this. You may not think about God at all, really, as you're doing that mentally. Or maybe you do, but you tell yourself God's okay with it. Do you know what scripture calls that? Scripture calls that having a calloused heart. Your heart, which should be tender and receptive to the spirit of God, bringing the law of God to bear upon your conscience, is instead calloused over. It doesn't feel anything. You feel nothing. So that's one option if you do not confess your sins to God. That could happen. Or the other option, which is the very opposite. Instead of having a calloused heart, you will have a heart that is overcome with guilt, shame, fear, and self-loathing. You don't bring those feelings before God in prayer, no, You just try your best to to bottle them all up inside as you endure the hell of a guilty conscience. That pain or that grief is not to be confused with the uh, sorrow and contrition and regret that accompanies true and genuine repentance as a work of God's spirit in your life. The Apostle Paul contrasts two kinds of sorrow In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, godly grief leads you to repentance, right? It's a grief that doesn't stay put. It knows where to go. It knows to go to God and confess, acknowledge, plead his mercy, and by his grace, turn from, repent, turn from that wickedness and endeavor hereafter to serve him all the days of your life. That's where godly grief 
takes you. It leads to repentance. It leads to salvation without regret. But the other kind of sorrow, the apostle calls a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief that produces death. This grief doesn't know where to go. It doesn't go anywhere. It just sits and simmers and your heart and your mind and your conscience are just simmering in it. This leads only in the end to death. So rather than confessing your sins to God with a humble and contrite heart, you might have a calloused heart that doesn't want to feel or admit any wrong. Or you might have a worldly grief consisting only of fear, shame, and sorrow with no remedy. Either way, you will not know God's grace. You will not know and feel his comforting presence and consolation and mercy and loving kindness unless and until you do what David just did. You confess your sins to Almighty God. We're Anglicans, right? Not just in the liturgy on Sunday, but at all times. Not just formally, but from the heart and genuinely. And look at what David said. It wasn't many words, was it? I have sinned against the Lord. Six words in English, only two words in Hebrew. It's not about the length or precise form of words you use. This is fundamentally about the heart, a broken and contrite heart, calling out to God, confessing to God, telling God the wrong you have done against him, admitting it, owning up to it, and asking for mercy, asking for grace, and the strength to hate your sin and turn from it and follow after him. Did you know you can do that this morning? You can do that right now. You know, all those wrongs you have done, even just this last week, the pride, the selfishness, the anger, the lust, the lies, the faithless anxiety, you know, all the good things that the Lord calls you to that you haven't done, prayer, generosity, hospitality, Bible reading. You don't have to deny your guilt. You don't have to pretend you're perfect and don't have any problems. And you also don't have to live and just kind of soak in your guilt and shame and despair. You can call upon the Lord like David did. You can say, I have sinned. And then you can taste and see that the Lord is gracious. And make no mistake, the Lord's response to David is gracious. We might fail to see that because we're fixated on the consequences that David will still experience for his sin. The Lord says that the son he has conceived with Bathsheba will die, verse 14. The Lord promises evil will arise out of David's house. And we see in subsequent chapters the brokenness and sin and rebellion that David has to deal with in the lives of his sons. 
David will even for a time be driven away from Jerusalem into exile as his own son Absalom stages a coup and takes over the throne. Yes, there are still consequences for David's sin, some of which will be quite painful. But all of these are received by David from the hand of a God who is his gracious father. They are received as discipline is received from a loving father. Indeed, this chapter, chapter 12, highlights for us the sheer unmerited grace of God in response to David's sin. Consider verse 13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Sometimes we numb ourselves to how genuinely shocking and frankly unsettling God's grace can appear to our ordinary human sensibilities, right? Imagine a judge who just lets a murderer go free. David deserves to die. He committed adultery. He tried to cover it up. He had a man killed. He despised the Lord. According to multiple Old Testament laws, which the people of God were under then, He should have been put to death. And indeed, before God, the wages of every sin is death. But Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How could that be? You know, often we ask, how can a loving God allow suffering? And that's a good question, one which many theologians throughout church history have wrestled with. But as I read the Bible, I think there's another question that gets asked that we don't ask often enough. How can a just God withhold punishment? How can a just God allow the guilty to just go unpunished? If any judge in the world tried it, there would be massive controversy. They would be put out of their office. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Not only will David not die, but the text tells us that although David's first child would die, David would conceive another son through Bathsheba afterwards who would live. Verse 24 says, And the Lord loved him, Solomon, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So David called his name Jedidiah, Because of the Lord. The name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. And if that's not enough, the chapter ends with a description of David conquering the Ammonite city of Rabbah. The same city Joab was besieging in chapter 11, where Uriah also died. David shows up and finishes the job, takes the crown of their king, which has a jewel in it, puts it on his head and returns to Jerusalem with great spoils, right? Not only is David not put to death, he is given a son through Bathsheba who is loved by God, will later be king. And the chapter ends with David returning to Jerusalem in pomp and glory as a conquering king. But David committed adultery. He stole and lied and murdered an innocent man. This is the grace of God. 
This is the undeserved favor of God resting on David. You know, you know that's what grace means, right? Undeserved favor. It's just not something you're entitled to. Right? This is the grace of God. And it, it is the grace available to you and I if we, like David, confess our sins to God in humility and repentance. He will put away your sin. He will forgive you. He will give you new life. Even if you must deal with some hard consequences of your sin, you will know God's love and favor. And you will be destined to rule and reign with Christ in glory when he returns in the kingdom of his father. Considering all of this, let's think again about the meaning of verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan the prophet did not come to David with an easy, pleasant message. The Lord's prophets are not typically described as those going about bearing easy, pleasant messages to the Lord's erring people, right? David came to call, or rather, Nathan came to call David out. He came to shake him awake. David had built up a whole tower in his ungodly scheming, and Nathan came to take out the bottom Jenga piece so it would all just come toppling down. And as David sat in the rubble of that rebuke and exposure, he realized that what Nathan did for him on that day was perhaps the greatest act of friendship that he had ever received. That day, Nathan proved himself to be a true friend of David. How so? Because he loved David enough to confront him about his sin. The sin that David had committed, covered up, refused to repent from, would have destroyed him, his life, everything around him. Nathan loved David too much to allow that to happen. Nathan was a true friend to David. And yet, the text says, right, it was the Lord who sent Nathan to David. Did you know that the name Nathan in Hebrew means gift? When the Lord sent Nathan to rebuke David in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord was sending David a gift. The first act of the Lord's grace and kindness to David was when he sent a righteous brother to confront him, rebuke him, and call him to his senses. That's what true friends do. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's Nathan David. Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what true friends do. A true friend is not one who only ever agrees with you. A true friend loves God, loves you, and so wants to see you love and follow God. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Psalm 141, verse 5. Get you a friend like that. I don't know how often I quote this, but I'm going to quote it again. Someone should keep a tally. Uh, The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not something you did once, but it is a constant reality, a daily reality. In this life, you and I will always have sin in our hearts. Every day we will pray, Forgive us our trespasses, as our Lord taught us. So repentance is a lifelong endeavor, this side of heaven. And if 2 Samuel 12 teaches us anything, it teaches us that repentance is good news. The the only alternative to repentance is the hell of living in unrepentance, ensnared in sin, destined for destruction. But repentance... Though it has a grief associated with it, leads to life and salvation without regret. But notice the grace and mercy that David experiences after his repentance. We could say it does not come without a cost. The Lord has put away David's sin. You shall not die, but your son's going to die. And just as the firstborn son of David and Bathsheba died for the sins of his father so that he might live, so also the son of God, true son of David, came into this world to die for sin that we might live. He bore our judgment on the cross so that we could know the grace and favor of God. He came down from the heavenly throne to give us sinners the crown of life. Brothers and sisters, these gifts are for you. Receive them. Confess your sins to God. Turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. And if you do that, he promises to embrace you in the arms of his love, give you his peace, and bring you into everlasting life. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we praise you for this beautiful picture of repentance and of your shocking grace that is available to us in Christ. Give us the grace daily and always to have such a heart of repentance receptive to you in which we do not allow sin to get a foothold. Grant that we would not deny our sin, but also that we would not uh, just soak in our sin and guilt and shame, but that we would bring it to you, trusting that you are good, you are gracious, and you will receive us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you gave up your own son 
for us that we might live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.